You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey there, it's Max. Uh, before we get started with the long-form podcast, I want to tell you about a new podcast that uh, Aaron and I are working on. It's for the Cleveland Browns of the National Football League. Yes, that is a weird thing for me to have said, uh, but it's true. For the entire 2015 NFL season, I'm going to be interviewing players and front office people and coaches and I think a couple of Hall of Famers uh, for the Cleveland Browns about football kind of, except I don't really know very much about football. So it's really going to be about lives off the field, uh, what their jobs are like. The Browns have given me crazy access to the organization to make the show, and uh, it's been really fun so far. I've met some fascinating people. There's going to be new shows throughout the season. The first one is up right now. It's uh, Browns Cast. You can find it at brownscast.com. It's on iTunes. There'll be a link in the show notes. If you like long form, this is like that, except football, but not really. Here's long form. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by my friends Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They're from Longform. Hey. Hey, you guys. How you guys doing? I, we're not just co-hosts, we're friends. I, that's new for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks. I'm glad that we've got, gotten cool. to this place. Cool, I'm glad we worked Big it. moment, big moment. Three years and yeah. uh, now we're friends. Wow. Insane. <laughs> who, can, who can know by the time we hit episode uh, 300 <laughs> where this relationship could go? Evan, I'm not going to ask you who's on the show this week because I know, because I've listened to it, and it's great. Tell us about it. I appreciate that. Uh, it's great because uh, this guest was great. It's Margot Jefferson. Uh, Margot Jefferson has been a critic for much of her career. She was a critic at the New York Times. She won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism there. She also was a critic at Newsweek, books, uh, and arts in general. She was a critic at Vogue. More recently, she has written a memoir, which is called Negroland. It's about uh, her growing up in Chicago and being part of what is goes by various names, but the black elite or the black bourgeoisie in Chicago. And she digs into sort of what that's meant uh, for her and her life, and it's an incredibly fascinating book. I loved it. Yeah, you had a lot of uh, post-it notes in that copy. This there. is filled with post-it notes what, what and those, also dog earring as well. What do those say on them? They say these are wise. I mean, they don't say anything, but yeah. they are marking wise passages. Uh, where I just thought this writing is uh, exceptional. You must have done like really well in school. Yeah, I I, I was a big. I've, I've I guess, never, but does that really help you? When that's, you that, to... was, that was always my, my thing, was what, what am I going to do with all these post-it notes? <laughs> it's sort of an excuse for not remembering something almost, because I got all these post-it notes. So I could just go back and flip to each post-it note. I don't have to 
memorize anything. I, I was at a uh, beach house this weekend and uh, I opened a copy of Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire, which I've actually never read, though I do enjoy his writing very much. And uh, it uh, had written uh, in the cover, um, overrated and self-masturbatory. <laughs> that was written <laughs> That was on written the like on the, fr- on, the fr- on the first page. Oh, man. Uh, self-masturbatory is an incredible critique. Yeah. Well, I'd like, I think we, we should definitely invite Michael Pollan on the show to defend himself. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, I disagree with that review. Actually, it'd be amazing if that was actually a signed copy and that's what he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Aaron, what about sponsors? Our sponsor this week, of course, is MailChimp. As Tiny Letter was great for people, MailChimp is great for business. I use it for my business, long-form newsletter. I, I believe Evan uses it for the Atavist newsletter. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, actually, I don't know anyone who uses any other mailing list service, which is an incredible testament, and that's corroborated by the 8 million lists that exist within the MailChimp ecosystem. I suggest you check them out. If you're starting a new list, it's free up until 2,000 subscribers. But for now, here's Evan and Margot Jefferson. Hello, Margot Jefferson. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Evan. I don't know anything about why books sell or are talked about, but this strikes me as a book that may be, may be very talked about. So well, all right. I'm excited to talk about it. Good. So, Me too. I feel that it's a challenge to ask you about this book because I felt that when I read the book, I mean, you can look at my book, the, my copy of it, which I started dog-earing and then I realized I was going to destroy it. <laughs> and then I went to post-its. And then actually ran out of post-its at the end. Like There were so many things in this book to think about. I feel sort of unqualified to ask about them in certain ways. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a cultural memoir. Yeah. You know, it's not, I'm not a historian whom you are checking, you know, whom, you, whom knowledge of facts, um, you know. Right. You're, you're being right. grilled true. about. Yeah. It, yeah. it is an experience. Yeah. Yeah. When you, the book is called Negro Land. Yes. And uh, maybe you could just uh, frame sort of how you would describe okay. what Negro Land is to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I picked that um, contentious word, <laughs> Negro, capital N, may I make very clear. Um <laughs> Because I I wanted something that was literal but metaphorical too to to first of all signal um, a time period that's that's historical that's etymological that's cultural you know when people were called Negroes what what we're named um, we being black people African Americans Negro colored people you know is kind of endlessly shifting, you know, and each era, each age has its preferred terms. Um, And even, you know, certain insults that some are lasting, all but eternal, others fall out of usage, you Mm -hmm, know, and are mm -hmm. replaced by other insults. But um, Negro was the word of honor and choice um, in the world I grew up with in that particular period. And I'm, the book is really focuses a lot on the, the, the 50s and early 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Negro first was capitalized, I think, the year I was born. So, you know, the word was, it was huge. And wow. you were always hearing, you know, worthy Negroes or not worthy Negroes. Or, you know, you can go back to old footage on TV and someone like Mike Wallace is saying, the young Negro musicians are very angry, you know, and it takes on this 
pointed, strange, you know, odd anthropological you know, yes. thing. So I wanted, I, I thought, okay, it'll stir some animus, but I, I wanted all these associations um, and recollections and feelings to go. I picked land. I, this term came to my head, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, because a land is real, but a land is also mythic, mm-hmm. you know, and and this world, this this space, this world that called itself and was called variously an elite, a bourgeois, <laughs> bourgeoisie, an aristocracy, a middle class. Again, it's poised between black life, white life, certain kinds of black life, certain kinds of white life. So it's it's a borderland mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. It was so fascinating to read about the the pressures that came from both sides from being in that that purgatory i don't know if you would call it a purgatory but being in this place where you are of an elite uh in one community and then you have another community that sometimes doesn't even perceive that 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 you exist or have any right or you could have accomplishments or rights there yeah yeah well uh, let's see purgatory were you raised catholic no. Oh. <laughs> Purgatory is where you're being, isn't it? I wasn't either. You're being cleansed, kind of waiting to see if you'll go to heaven. I guess you're waiting to see if you're going up or down, up so or to speak. Down. Hmm. I'm going to think about that. Right. But this this strange contended space, yeah, which could be very sheltered and lovely, but could be invaded yeah. at, at any time. Yeah. yeah. And you sort of talk about uh, navigating that and the, and the difficulties of, of navigating that. And a lot of it is about the expectations that come from your parents and your your family when you were growing up. And, and you know, and from the history that they had I know, um, assumed and imbibed and <laughs> assimilated. You know, it, it, that's one reason I, I think of it as a cultural memoir, because um, just as, you know, black and white and colored and those things keep diverging and and merging the cultural and the personal and by culture I mean everything from literally you know music or whatever to you know practices cultural practices which include politics and, and the social those things kept you know kind of the personal and the and the cultural keep kind of mutating and mm-hmm. taking each other's places. It's the same thing with um, class and race and gender. They just keep taking on each other's disguises, or one will pass for the other. You right, know, right. Or, so. And that was, I mean, the the fact that it it does contain this history. I mean, it's a like if you just look at the description of it and it says memoir and then but it starts in the 1800s yeah after after that opening section that's that's personal i then say all right i'm gonna step back you know i'm i'm gonna erase myself and enter history yeah and and it's not all personal history although you do trace your own ancestors but but it start it, it quite a few pages of social political again of cultural history and what was yeah. the the sort of reasoning behind uh behind sort of starting it there's a little preface but like starting it at that point okay uh, i think well there was a sense right immediately for me as a writer that you know the the readers were going to need to be introduced in really almost submerged in this world uh, you know some would know but 
you know, but still, I, I thought a real lineage was important, and I also thought there wouldn't be any other way to, um, to play out the contradictions and complexities. You know, if you have a so-called aristocracy that is also coming from, um, you know, slaves and free people, and it's based on skin color, but also on accomplishments and you know, also on, you know, privileges you may get from white people around you who could also become your enemies at any time. You know, all of that, you need a map. The reader needed a map for that. Yeah, yeah. Certain information you had to travel with, I needed to get it clear from myself, too. I, you know, it was my own history course, too. Right, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I thought, I can't be wanton about this. You know? Yeah. You actually have this, what I, I thought was a really wonderful passage where you're actually talking about, you, you sort of address who the reader is. And I was thinking of myself as the reader, like 40-year-old white man who grew up in the South. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. Where? Which uh, state? In Atlanta. Oh. Um, and reading Margaret the book. Margaret Mitchell land. <laughs> uh, yes. Ah. Yes. Although I've never seen Gone with the Wind or read it. Actually, well, um, you, you've, you're behind me in that case. <laughs> That's true. I guess when I when I was reading the book, I mean, part of what the book made me feel was ignorant of of a certain slice of American culture and life that. I felt like I should know more about and didn't. But that's good. That's yeah. oh, I think yeah. it's very good. Yeah, but you had this. You had this section where you. It's a very elegant passage, which I I might butcher, but I actually wrote down some of it. Where you're you're talking about uh, privilege and sort of white privilege and and black privilege among this black elite, and that if you were an African American person cleaning a house of a white person. Would you rather be that, or would you rather be an African American person cleaning the house of an African American person? Like, and the actual question you ask is, whose privilege would you would would you find easier to bear? And then right after that, you say, who are you? As in, who are you, the reader? How does your sociological vita, race, ethnicity, class, gender, family history affect your answer? And I was wondering, what, who do you think the reader is? Who who are you writing to? You know. And now I'm going to jump back a little. Um, you know, all of these years that um, I've been a critic, right. I've had this awareness um, that I was often speaking without directly acknowledging that to extremely varied audiences. Mm -hmm. So I would be, I might be, particularly when I started writing um, cultural criticism, where you were kind of jumping from a specific art or experience to a larger, you mm -hmm. know, consideration or generalization. And I would think, I would say something and I would think, um, okay, my um, certain kind of white reader will interpret it that way, a certain kind of black reader will interpret it that way. I need to send some signals. Same with gender. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've, I've always been aware of that. Not always I think to my advantage, it can make you overly guarded um, and overly surreptitious in a way. Uh, but you know, I wasn't. I started at at you know very traditional places and spent a lot of my life there. Newsweek, then the Times. Right. Those aren't places where, like you know, in the old Village Voice, you said, "Well, you know, as a black woman <laughs> you know, of such and such generation, let me you know." Or you might think, dear reader 
that, you know, I'm going to say that, but surprise, I'm going to say this. I, you know, that wasn't permitted. I couldn't build that into something I was writing, so I would have to find other ways. So, you know, sometimes I think I say towards the beginning, I'm kind of overwhelmed by thinking about who these readers yes. are and what they want from me, which is probably the first time I'd said something like that in print. Oh, Absolutely. So, you know, that was one of those moments. I my readers are blacks of various, from various backgrounds, which makes big differences. Whites of various backgrounds, m many others. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, everything in between. Yeah, you know, Latinas, Arabs, um, Asians, um, some of whom also have real points of connection with this as... You know, because of those roles, double roles they're playing, um, often ethnically, racially, etc. So um, I realized all I could do so that I wouldn't keep second-guessing myself, as I felt I'd often done in my criticism, was at various points, you know, when, when the, the tensions became really strong and when I thought the, the subject, the moment, was, was, was treacherous, like that moment when... You know, I, a person of privilege, am contemplating my cleaning woman, you know, our family's cleaning woman, remembering my parents having that kind of discussion, and then exposing her, she's dead now, but exposing her, them, and, you know, to an audience of strangers. Mm -hmm. That's when I had to stop and say, oh, okay, wait a minute, take this in yourself. You know, let's each of us consider this. I'll, I'll take my responsibility for what I'm thinking you know, step up and think about it yourself. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of challenge, too. Hey, I'm going to pause things here quickly to give you a word from our sponsor, Casper. What is Casper, you say? It is a new way to buy a mattress that in no way ever involves a mattress showroom. Thank God. You're going to go online, you pick out a mattress you like, the prices are outstanding. $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress, and these are no ordinary mattresses. They have just the right sink, just the right bounce. It's two technologies, latex foam, memory foam, that combine to make an incredible night's sleep. And best of all, once you get it, it comes in this cool box that does not look like it would fit a mattress, but somehow does. You open it up, you have 100 days to sleep on it. If you don't like it, send it back. It will not cost you a cent. Not even the shipping costs you a cent. So if you're in the market for a new mattress, a new mattress made in America for a great price without the hassle of a showroom, I'd love it if you would go to casper.com slash longform. You're going to put in promo code longform. You'll get $50 off and support this show. Thank you, Casper. Here is Evan with Margot Jefferson. You, you worked for so many years as a critic, as you mentioned, and I, I want to talk about that in a bit. Do you hear a critic's voice in your, in your head? When you're writing? I mean, everyone does. Everyone does, Is yeah. yours different, do you think, because you professionally criticized? I don't know how different it is. It might move faster towards certain stern, critical tones, <laughs> um, i.e., you know, any writer is going to say in moments of despair, that's terrible, you know, I blew it. The critic might be more likely to say... That, that absolutely fails because, and then produce one of those 
analytic, you know, meticulous answers that may be true up to a certain point, but that can also be absolutely deadening. You know, the, 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 the critic can always return to or resort to a kind of omniscient narrative, omniscient narrator tone, and that can be very hard for the writer right. in you to counter. Well, maybe particularly when you're writing something that is very personal, uh, Absolutely. About your own history. What made you at this point in your life decide that now was the time when you wanted to to take this on? Well, you know, once once I started this this book writing thing, you know, when I first did the Michael Jackson book, mm -hmm. um, I realized, oh, all right, you know, books are interesting. I want to test this more. I want to I want to do more with this. Um, what do I do next? And I if you're going to test a form, then you might as well test the role you play um, in that form. So, you know, I had done, actually, in around 2002, I had um, done a couple of theater pieces that trafficked um, in this material, a tra you mm -hmm. know, to some extent. Like performances? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, one, a show that I did with my um, niece, who's a dancer and actor, and and that we both, we developed at an at a institute that Anna DeVere Smith had. And then another that I did alone. And that was where I first tried out some of this material. I still don't know why it, why it felt easier to do out loud <laughs> in a performance, but it did. And, you know, once something is written down, and you've also performed it, it's there. So, you know, I couldn't forget it. It stayed interesting to me. Did you take anything from the live audience? We just talked about not knowing who your readers are, really. Did you take anything from the live audience and how they responded to it? Or could you see and tell how they responded to it? You know, it? With, with audiences, it's odd because you're, you know, you're feeling energy mm -hmm. um, more than, you know, unless you talk to people afterward. The audiences were, were quite mixed. So... You know, I felt the material was exciting to people. That I could take. Yeah. There's a chapter on passing. It's some of your family members yeah. passed as white for much of their lives, and then one of them returned to the black community. <laughs> Great and, Uncle Lucius, after he retired from his job. Yes. That, that chapter is unbelievable. <laughs> I feel oh. like when people talk about the like social construct of race... Like, that chapter is just, That's, you don't even have to say it. You could yeah. just read that. Was there a question of whether you felt you could write about that, write about your family, or did you feel like you owned that story and you, sh I you should be able to I, write it? I, well, again, I, don't, I, I make clear in that that I'm, I'm not using, I don't use any names except right, right. for my not-passing cousin Lillian. Right. So I did actually feel, I felt, yep. I'm telling this. It's fascinating. Um, but I did still feel I had to disguise, give them, give them their disguises mm -hmm. with by by the initials. Um, a part of me even thought, well, who are these cousins? You know, <laughs> who were um, came looking? You know, um, you know, trying to track uh, John Eddy, the other white cousin in that in that story. What maybe they're out in the world? Maybe yeah. they have children. Yeah. But this, you know, this is something that I. Part of the the etiquette, if you will, of passing that I somewhat imbibed from my parents from this book. Uh, I remember in the seventies, so you know we've gone b black power and, and everything. My mother, she and my father started telling many more stories about their old friends, and hmm. one of the stories that came up well, involved a white woman 
So everyone thought band leader, who'd been quite successful in the 40s. Well, it turned out she was black, and my mother and a group of friends who'd known her as a little girl in Chicago had all of this information and evidence, names, you know, changes. They tracked it all. And I said, ah, you know, I'm going to write an article about that um, and expose her. And my mother said, well, why do? Why would you need to do that? She may have family. You, know, you just can think twice. And I realized, well, that generation, they were they were often very concerned about who you protected. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was some interesting kind of loyalty that she was willing to extend to this woman, mm-hmm. um, who will eventually show up in history, right? right yeah. <laughs> um, revealed as. But I thought, okay, okay, mother. At the same time, you know, they would joke and mock and whatever. But how how did you process that as a younger person? Uh, you know, these relatives that you sort of find out about? Well, Uncle Lucius was, that was very interesting to me. I mean, he was, he sat in our living room. I, I heard this story. You know, he looked, he was, he'd been, he didn't just look like a white man. Many people I grew up with did. He, he had been, you know. <laughs> so this was so, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, the girl in the exorcist, your head started <laughs> right. spinning around. And I was mesmerized. Um, was he a deeply interesting man, you know, in and of himself? Probably not necessarily, but, you know, my sense of drama was absolutely riveted. It wasn't talked about a lot. Maybe in some families it was, because some were, you know, very proud of this or joked about it a lot or had really lots of relatives who crossed Mm -hmm. back and forth. This wasn't talked about a lot in my family at all. It feels like you're playing with form a lot in this Thank you. I am. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Yes. Well, one of the things you do is you, uh, you sort of step back. And so you'll, you'll describe an incident, let's say an incident where you, you were subject to discrimination or a sort of uh, slur, whether inadvertent or intentional when you were a kid. And then you step back in the next chapter and say something like, I think it's too easy to recount unhappy memories when you write about race. Yes. And I'm interested in that interplay of pulling back and why why and how you, you set those boundaries. Like, how do you structure something like that? <laughs> over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep one of the things about working with a memoir esque form was um, I really wanted to get th- those changes of mind and mood, these mood swings that mm-hmm. um, and tone swings that are so much a part of our daily lives, but aren't necessarily what a memoir narrator is most involved in. Um, but that really fascinated me, um, partly because it gives you so much drama, but and also because partly it seemed true to my own temperament and voice as a writer, but also formally. Mm-hmm. That was just really interesting. I, w- I was able to play around with things that I just hadn't been before as a writer. Um, also, that kind of hyper self-consciousness, you know, oh, oh, you know, this is terrible, look what happened, I'm fine. You know, no, it, well, all right, it was, it was an unpleasant remark, but, you know, now we're going to go to a splash party together and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, that was very, very characteristic of, of the world, the, my, my world, my training, mm-hmm. um, how I was trained to 
function successfully, mm-hmm. um, you know, and navigate and negotiate all these shifts <laughs> of, right. of consciousness, of perception, of race awareness, of acceptance and non-acceptance. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that seemed like the most difficult and debilitating part of being in this world not being able to trust how people were responding to you at different times. I think that's right. Or you trust it, and then suddenly the response changes. Mm-hmm. And you have to, oh, you know, you, what, what? am I a fool to have trusted this? Or did this person really not expect this thing to happen? So, you know, how do I reconfigure? Um, do I hold the grudge? Do I bury it? Mm-hmm. You know, do I try to rise above it? Um, and what is what do those choices make of me and of the other person too? Right. Yeah. yeah. And of the structure we're all part of. Yeah. And it it reminded me a little bit of David Carr's memoir. I don't know if you read it called The Night of the Gun. Oh, that's interesting. Because I haven't, but I've you know, I know In a way he he's, Tell me more. That's well, so me. he's writing I mean it's an addiction memoir. Yes, this I did know. But he often will pull back and say Addiction memoirs always go this way, or okay. this is what an addiction memoir would typically, this Dude. is what typically would happen, and this is the arc of that story, and I'm trying to tell you a different story, or I'm trying to escape from that. Right. And it, there from were, a pattern of expectation and of narrative. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I felt, I felt that same, it felt like you were maybe trying to not write a certain kind of book. Well, you know, maybe what you're saying in a way is, and I think there's truth to this, um, one of the uh, problems with burdens of race conversations um, in this country is certain ideological and narrative, (laughs) you know, political, sociological narratives that keep getting imposed. Mm -hmm. And and I think I said repeated expectations, you know, Mm -hmm. this is where the conversation should go, these are the roles we need, this is what, in a way, this is the comfort level of my discomfort, <laughs> even. You know, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. If we're talking about it this way, you know, that's the net. I can contend with that. Right. I know the parameters of this exactly. discussion. This is not going to escape into an uncomfortable place. That's right. For that's me. right. Right. That's right. So that's, it's, that's a very interesting comparison. Yeah. Maybe we're all somewhat addicted. I think we are <laughs> to certain racial conversations. You know, with their limitations and their conventions. I was reading a, an interview that you did with a playwright a few years ago, and you asked this lovely question, which I'm going to steal from you, which was, what writers were you in conversation with in writing this book? And you were asking this of this playwright. I thought that's, that's actually a brilliant way to ask that. Like, what writers were in your mind as you were writing this book? Well, some of them found their way onto the page, mm-hmm. you know, like Baldwin, um, like... Uh, I steal that um, line from Virginia Woolf, what governs people's, you know, hate, despair. I've blocked it out. I've used it so much. Um, And I used it and, you know, and then all those usually women that I stole those despair quotes from. Yes. (laughs) So I was in open conversation with them. Um, But I think, again, I was so grappling with... um, Memoir and the, the, the what did I know? I didn't know memoir very well, but I was entering it. I knew reviews extremely well, but I knew essays. So I was I found that the the 
the works that have more directly to do with that were eccentric memoirs that involved a lot of digressions, you know, mm-hmm. or essays that, you know, the personal essay. Uh, I really, really admire Richard Rodriguez's, um, mm-hmm. you know, call them autobiographies, call them memoirs, you know, but one is more on education, one is more the public and the private worlds of straight, gay, um, Mexico, the U.S., etc. Um, the third is race and ethnicity. That, you know, and they're, they're essays that, that join together in such odd and tremendous ways. I loved that. Um, I loved how um, Hilton Alls' books, like, you know, um, The Women or White Girls, you know, always, you know, in, contain some wild cultural take that is very, very intimate. You know, so there's confession and obsession and analysis. Uh, that was very um, interesting to me. Uh, I had not read Mary McCarthy's, you know, notes notes from a Catholic girlhood mm-hmm. um, in years, but it kept coming back to me because that was the first book um, I remember reading where a very confident memoirist openly disputed her own memories, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, and allowed for that doubling um, and that that self-critical vulnerability. Right. So yeah. that was. And Interesting to me. It gets, uh, I mean, the book gets to very intimate places or vulnerable places when you, I mean, you talk about depression, and I had never heard depression framed this. You, you say something like, for, you know, for black women, depression was sort of like the, the privilege that you could never have. Like, that was a privilege that white women had that you weren't allowed to have. Um, it's true. For one thing, it can feel because it's very tied to a, you know a, the kind of melancholy that comes from this struggle, you know, this constant, I am proving myself. It can feel like a respite, All right? You know, I am not responsible to that functioning, successful persona. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. um, no expectations can be put on me. Uh, no, I am in my chosen study, sell, you know, this is not too high a price to pay. It's a, it is, it's a respite. Maybe that's a better word than rest. And it also gives you utter privacy mm-hmm. in a strange way. Um, the other thing I, w- I was talking about in that comparison was, you know, the, the very different um, mythologies that white and black women, you know, have contended with. And, you know, there is a certain uh, glamour you know, to the the Sylvia Plath narrative, the Virginia Woolf narrative, the artistic, lovely, <laughs> gifted um, white woman, you know, who's almost too sensitive for this world amidst <laughs> her gifts. Um, you know, and it can be, God knows what it cost them. We do know. But it has had a certain, you know, glorification. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and what what was the lineage that I as a black woman got? You must struggle to overcome all the time. You know, you must be perfect. You will not really be fully acknowledged for this, but you must never, ever stop working for it. And no, you know, um, do not admit that you are vulnerable. That is closed from your vocabulary, okay? So that's, that those are expressive constraints as well as high demands. Those feelings, I mean, you talk about 
feeling this depression and even suicidal tendencies or exploring that in yeah. the 70s. And dramatizing the, them in a way, yeah. right? Yeah. But but this is in a time period when you're already starting to be successful in it's your true. career. Yes, it's true. And I'm curious, the book gets in, it comes up to the present day in, in a way, but it doesn't explore sort of how your professional career started. And I know that no, it doesn't. you went to Columbia Journalism School. Right. Uh, from And you went to Brand, you went to Brandeis. I went and then, to Brandeis, and then a couple of years later, the J School. Right? And then how did you get your start God, as a journalist? The first piece I ever published um, was about rock and roll. Um, in Harper's, yes, the year I have after. It right here. Oh my God! <laughs> and I had worked on that. 1974. I think 72. 72. Maybe. Yeah, some, I think it's 72. All right. Um, I had first worked on that um, at Columbia with um, a very good New Yorker writer who was my who was oh, my wow. teacher. So I'd done a version of that. Um, Columbia in those days was a very good old boy network. Mm. And if you were a girl, you could still profit. Oh, you could. And, they let and you. a black girl, you could still profit <laughs> from the white old boy network. So, <laughs> so someone at Columbia put me in touch with Lewis Lapham. You mm. know, so you can send a query, query letter. So I sent the letter. Um, he published the piece. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one piece, and then you start to freelance for other places. Um, I went to Newsweek in 73, mm -hmm. and, you know, then I was always a little restless places, so then I left and freelanced for a while and taught at NYU, and, you know, I, it, the, the freelancing was not wanting to have more than one voice. Um, as soon as I left Newsweek, I started writing for places like The Nation mm -hmm. and The Voice, you know, where, of course, you could work in ways, mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of the pieces you did, the subjects, and your your voice that it, one hadn't that I hadn't done at Newsweek. Mm -hmm. um, That's the freedom of the freelancer. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and the, and the choices you make. Uh, then I taught and went back and forth, um, went to Vogue, was pre-Anna Winter uh, as a contributing editor, and then I think my first links to the Times were writing for the book review. Yeah. And then yeah. that's how we started negotiations. Uh -huh. yeah. well, I, I don't want to get too far away from this Harper's piece before we talk sure. about it for a second, because I, I read oh, it and it was, I was fascinating. in my incendiary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you mad. remember this piece? Yes. <laughs> the, the rock and roll is the minstrel show, right? Yes. yes of course. <laughs> but I found so many echoes in here to conversations that have today around that happen today around hip hop and white yes. artists in hip hop. The same. It's true. Same conversations. No, it's really, it's really, really true. Yeah, and there's even a critique, um, and I actually wrote about this at um, at the Times. There's even a critique among many black critics who don't like hip hop, who will up the critique up, calling it a kind of minstrel show, black minstrel show. Mm -hmm. You know, blacks can play minstrels as much as as much as whites. Goes the yeah. Uh huh. So it it goes on. Oh, it goes on around people like Miley Cyrus, right? right yeah. Right. Yep, 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 yep. Do you remember what what sort of instigated this the idea? I'd kind of been brooding over it. Um and, and with a lot of mixed feelings, all of which didn't find their way into the piece. Um I actually I liked Janis Joplin, but I would get furious, you know, when critics would say, oh, you know, this is the most soulful music you're going to find. Yeah, I loved that Jimi Hendrix was all over the map. Um, but I loved it, and I loved that he was this black guy in this world that everyone thought, this music world that everyone thought was white, you know. So 
you know, I was kind of in turmoil about mm-hmm. about all of this. Uh, you know, I think it was a, you know, a, a sort of mirror of or a reflection of or an objective correlative for a lot of things I was, you know, thinking about and mm-hmm. contending with just in terms of um, cultural race, you know, um, conundrums and relations and 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 all of that and yeah. the appropriation I mean, yeah uh, yes that's right and who was allowed to appropriate what and for example you know being a member of the bourgeoisie um we were often in those days if you were a pop critic you would often sneer at what looked like too sophisticated black pop you know, uh, uh, absolutely. Oh my God! You know that day, or um, jazz musicians who seemed, you know, even someone like John Hammond. Um, you can find old quotes of his where, oh, such and such musician. You know, oh, he's from a middle class family. He's a little too prissy. Da, da, da. This is, a, you know, it's Frankie Newton. I mean, it's some wonderful musician. Uh, <laughs> you find it in critiques of gospel music among critics who really like the quartets, but the women are too. Um, too baroque, you know, in their styles. It's all too... So, you know, I was very interested in all those double standards of appropriating downward versus appropriating upward and, you know, why it was always considered, it seemed to me, authentic if you were white and being soulful. But, right. you know, the the limits of authenticity were much stricter if you were a black artist. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was reading about that Lynn Povich book that's about the New- Newsweek. About Newsweek. Book. Yes. Yeah, about the Newsweek lawsuit. Yes. yes. And the Times Review, actually, from a few years ago, says they filed this lawsuit. I think it's the Times Review. It says they filed this lawsuit. And the person who got got a job as a result of this lawsuit was Margot Jefferson. Now, well, I was one. <laughs> as a result of that lawsuit, um, I think what the Times said was, you know, various people. Um, because as as a result of the lawsuit, some women were promoted from researchers to reporter. Other women were hired. I see, I see. And I was one of the ones who was hired. Um, and I think that what the Times reviewers said was something like, you know, in fact, one of the, you know, That's women who right. profited yeah. from this yeah, was yeah, Margot yeah, right. Jefferson, who later became a cultural yeah. critic at this magazine. <laughs> uh, but was I, in fact, a direct beneficiary of this threatened lawsuit? Absolutely. And yeah. we, but you weren't part of the lawsuit. No, I no. wasn't there yet. Yeah, so I that was, you got yeah. hired, right? Obviously, so I, you wouldn't was, be part I of the benefited from it. That's right. That's right. But part of what I wanted to but ask. But Lynn was, was one of those, you know, who was I think promoted because of it. Yeah. So uh, I see. Yeah. So, but you went to work with those people. Absolutely. Yes. It. They were all still there. And uh, I mean, I'm I th- very grateful to them. Yes. Yeah, it's still sort of a uh, seems absurd that that had to happen at that point in. History, you know, they you know. weren't the only in magazine or newspaper threatened with lawsuits in yeah. terms of race and gender. Yeah. Um, but I, but another thing I wondered was just maybe maybe I read that I sort of misread that Times thing a little bit. But I actually wondered if it if it's sort of irritating to be called out in that way. You know what I mean? That I they said there's a law, lawsuit and that's how you got your job. Um, you know, the day I was being interviewed um, by Jack Kroll, in fact, for the job, another writer. Uh, came in, and he said, "Oh, I know you. Um, you know you. I know you from Columbia. Um, you were." And he named my movie writing um, teacher. He said, "Oh, you were um, Judy Chris's favorite student, um, or best favorite student." I said, "Oh, sweetly." And he said, "Oh, he said, you know, I tried to get my best student a job here, but I couldn't because he wasn't black or a woman." And he said this in front of the editor 
who the arts editor who was interviewing me. And I looked at him, and Jack did something to change the subject. And I got the job, and I thought, okay, that is so ugly. I am never, you know, I know, I know how good I am. I'm never going to try to cover up that I wouldn't have been able to show how good I am without, you know, these attacks, these challenges to the system. Right, never would get in the door. Exactly. Did you ever uh, go back to that person and say, would you like to see my Pulitzer Prize? Um, we haven't seen each other over those years. Oh, it's been a long time after I left Newsweek. I never saw him again. Uh, so, you know, do I sometimes get irritated? There's a tone people can take or a, you know, I know sometimes people say, oh, that's, she's good, but that's why she got the Pulitzer. You know, that kind of thing. You, But, you know, the historical facts of it, no, I'm, I'm not going to dispute those. Um, Mm-mm. People need to remember them. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's exactly what I was wondering. Yeah. But what they say if I'm behind my back sometimes, God knows. <laughs> <laughs> so as you gravitated towards doing criticism and, and you started working at the Times and, you know, you were doing, it seemed like largely book criticism, but yes, also other type of arts. Yes, that's what I'd really been doing. At, um, I've been hired at Newsweek as a book critic and most of the freelance work I'd done had been books. So that's what I was hired to do it at the times and then I started pushing to do more performance mm. you know and and you know these days thinking of cultural connections is really interesting I mean even with theater so much theater is busy borrowing from film and you, know, you just have to um, and that's that is intellectually and temperamentally just really it always excites me you know how things connect or conflict or whatever so that's why I you know, kept lobbying for a slightly larger territory to play mm-hmm. around with. And is that what drew you to criticism in general? I mean, it's a particular particular slice of of journalism and writing. And what what do you think went into your both desire to and aptitude at doing criticism? I've always been good at at seeing oh, this, but on the other hand, well, let's come up with a third view. You know, a kind of parsing different sides of something. That can make you a real wimp. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, oh, well, we don't didn't don't need to disagree why she feels and he feels. Um, and so I think it was very good that I had stringent, a stringent streak that meant I had strong judgments about things. So mm-hmm. I think that combination did probably serve me well. Why did I want to be a critic? Um, I think I wanted to get to the, the center of the culture and feel I had a voice and some authority there. Mm-hmm. And some control internal as well as external, I think. Did you feel that at the times? Like the times, especially then, it, it was the center of the universe. When it, I mean, it, Yeah, what, but, you know, but yes, it's true. It's certainly power. Um, once you're at any very powerful institution, you, of course, are very aware of what is permitted and what's not permitted. Mm. Um, certain examples of the power, I mean, I loved the power of being read a lot, but I did not actually enjoy the power of um, possibly being able, unless I thought it was egregious and evil, um, close down a show or kill book sales. Mm. or you know, That didn't feel quite cricket to me, <laughs> actually. 
I couldn't find any vicious reviews of your. I read a lot of them. I couldn't. I don't think I, I found was some vicious, you, but I could be quite harsh. Yeah. Yes, yes. Do you remember any stern? Any <laughs> anything? Any show in particular that you well, closed down or or I book that actually, you Actually, I'm not sure I did because it turns out a number of things um, you think you have power over. You don't. Um, I couldn't have closed down an Andrew Lloyd Webber show to save my life, and I hated them. <laughs> no, but there was nothing I could do. <laughs> you, know? you know, by the time I got to the Times, actually, the culture, movies, but certainly TV, but plays too. You know, the big hits were almost impervious to what a critic thought of them, except, you know, in terms of intellectual discourse. But financially, not really. Mm. So I guess I would say that sense that sense that yours, because it was the Times voice, was always, ipso facto, the most important, that that unsettled me sometimes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And you won a Pulitzer in 1995. I did, 95, yeah. yeah. And, and that was mostly from my book writing. I had just started the, crit- the theater work when I got the Pulitzer. Yeah, yeah. So I read all those those pieces, and um, it it seemed like then. I mean, there's some echoes in it, your book because you're you're weaving together a lot of larger cultural ideas into the reviews. And I I was curious if you sort of felt like you were engaged in a larger project around these pieces, or if really the task at hand was. Someone has to review this book. I want to review this book. Look, there's always sometimes I want to review. I just want to do this, you know. But, um, you know, ever since when I'd started at Newsweek, I I had a kind of mandate for myself, and and it was twofold. And one thing was I really do want to pay attention to um, books that aren't going to be probably attended to by my colleagues. And those were often books by people of color, books by women, mm-hmm. um, you know, even strange, um, you know, historical uh, little patches here and there. Um, I remember doing a, was it two or three volume biography of Eleanor Marks, the <laughs> youngest daughter of, of we know who. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, um, I said to myself, said I, um, as Gilbert and Sullivan put it, um, you know, no, I'm not going to be the, oh, she she does the blacks and the people of color and the women. That's what she does. She, does, You know, that, mm-hmm. that's fine. That's that's her beat. There are all sorts of things in the culture that I'm fascinated by, and I am, do, I am claiming, you know, all of that, too, or any part of it that I want, and I'm going to do both of these things. Um, and that really stayed with me. That's been something that's, you know, I've always felt... Did you feel that pressure, either implicitly or explicitly, at places to say, it's, like, you cover, you're covering this body um, of literature? It, it's, it's very, it's sometimes it's there by default, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, it, I would say, rarely explicitly, you know. Um, it was more just you know, kind of the way things would fall out if you were not um, careful, uh-huh. <laughs> if you wanted, didn't want to be sure. By the time I got to the Times. Less so, I would say it was truer in the um, in the seventies, probably, uh-huh. and um, and eighties. And sometimes it would simply be what books you were offered. Right. You know. Yeah. Oh, I remember an um, an editor I shall not name um, asking once, and this would have been a freelance assignment. It was not the Times. Um, oh, are you interested in a piece on Dora's Day? And I said, Well, in fact, yes. Um, and the next thing I knew. Um, 
a distinguished white male novelist, better known than I was at that time, um, had written about her, but you know, he certainly didn't write about music or entertainers nearly as much as I did. So I thought, well, it was as much a stretch for him. (laughs) Why not give me the piece? (laughs) So periodically, but you know, once I established that, it became a strength of mine, Mm -hmm. actually. And it 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 was it was useful. Mm One piece, though, I was asked to do, um, and that was actually at the Times. It was Marian Anderson's something-something anniversary, maybe mm-hmm. anniversary of the birth, and would I do a piece on her? And I said, you know, I really don't think this is a good idea. Um, I don't have credibility as a classical music critic. You know, I only write, you know, this write about classical music. I allude to it, mm-hmm. and I'm, it won't be. She, you know, she was a major opera singer. She deserves to be taken totally seriously. And if I write about her, it will look like, you know, um, a kind of quote quote um, affirmative action, you know, piece of condescension. So, um, um, one of the white classical music critics wrote the piece, and that was much more appropriate. Mm. And why did you um, why did you leave the Times? Um, I was working on the Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. and um, I realized um, I, I really I, I want to focus my writing energies on um, you know because all these years I'd also been struggling with these <laughs> the the um, what the distribution of energy that working <laughs> and contending with melancholia and death thoughts will impose on you. You've got to be careful about your energies and resources. So I thought, oh, you know. Um, I want to work on books and essays. Um, you know, and I'd always been trying, often with these shorter pieces, to to make them more essayistic. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I don't do long forms. Let me see what happens. And the the Michael Jackson book was the first... Was that the longest thing you'd written since the Harper's piece? Maybe not the longest, but you know what most of the pieces you write for... Um, but, you know, certainly my Newsweek pieces were quite short. Um, I don't think I wrote longer than 2,500 words for many years. Mm-hmm. And those were the long pieces. We don't have to get too far into the Michael Jackson book, but uh, it's called On, My- On Michael Jackson, right? Uh, <laughs> That's that kind of essayistic, I'm being contemplative. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little self-important. I, admit. I, like, I like it. But it was, I think that one of the interesting things about it was as a critic and as an essayist, you, if these terms, if high and low even mean anything as cultural terms anymore, you travel very easily between them. Thank you. Good. And I, do, I, I, I like to. I want to. Yeah. But was there a risk? Did you feel like to your criticism of higher art forms to, say, write a book about Michael Jackson? Did you feel a career uh, risk in that? Um, no. But as it turned out, there were. People, um, I was surprised. People would come up to me very, very politely at readings, and they would say, they'd be in polite distress. They'd say, I've admired your work for so many years, and, you know, this was really well written, but why did you decide to write a book about Michael Jackson? You know, I mean, look at what you've done. Uh, (laughs) What would you say? You know, I never quite had the... I would say I wanted to, or I'd say, you know, he's... You know, he, he's he's a genius, and he's deeply troubled, and he also embodies so many troubles and horrors and conflicts in American culture. I think, actually, had I been able to complete the book earlier, before all, you know, of the scandal and horror descended on him, um, it, 
his, he would have had more credibility. But mm-hmm. by the time my book came out, you know, please, Michael Jackson, <laughs> right. you know, he was, yeah, he was an object of certainly still passion for the diehard fans, but also of a lot of contempt, disdain, and squeamishness. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that was timing. I, I just wish I'd finished it earlier. Once he died, or after he died. <laughs> now I'm talking like a, you know, a crass author. Because as soon as he died, it became possible for, for so many more writers and critics again to, you know, to look back. I mean, that's just the way we all are. Oh, that's interesting. While he was still alive, you, you sort of had to uh, grapple with the yeah, more and, disturbing and things that it, happened at and the end. And filter it through often, yeah. All right. Oh, fascinating. So you, you wrote the book and you also teach. I do, yeah. And I'm curious how you feel criticism fits into the current sort of cultural world with the web and with social media and the kind of criticism you've done for your whole career. What do you think the role is? And you have students who obviously you talk to about their writing. Do you have a perspective on sort of how the internet fits into that world? Uh, well, it, you know, for, for students, the one way in which it really doesn't work for them is it almost never pays. Mm-hmm. You know, but its presence, you know, gives them lots of options and there's a lot of, of really good stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of crap. There's plenty of crap in the larger, you know, in the, in the offline world. So that really doesn't worry me. There are moments when we all feel, meaning from a first year graduate student to me, oh my God, are we going to be rendered obsolete? Because, you know, if you and your friends and a few other people you're following and respect, you know, can have all the conversations, then there's a glut. You know, you're not going to want to keep. Um, but I, most professions have some version of that kind of, of challenge. Um, I don't have a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm moseying along. Um, I like the fact that so many people feel some version of critical response um, is essential to them, that it feels kinetic and, and exciting. You know, there used to be, when I was coming along, criticism was still, as it had been for decades, even centuries, you know, the, the kind of, oh, it's the second. You know, it's the, art, it's the form that feeds on mm-hmm. greater forms. Um, it's a little stiff. It's, you know, yes, it can be very impressive, but it, it, it often didn't feel essential. And a lot of it does now, and I and I like that. It's sort of the central mode of web writing in a way. Yeah, is, yeah. Is criticism or you know examining whether other web ideas or other forms of art and saying your opinion about them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even all the stuff about the number of opinions that have surfaced in was it twenty four hours about Kanye West for president? You know, <laughs> right. but, the VMA awards. You know, uh, I have nothing to add on that. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, at first I looked at it. I thought, wait a minute, and then I then I read something else, and you know, something kind of interesting about politics and pop culture. I thought, all right, so you know, it's a way of working the muscles. Right. <laughs> you know, right? I, I'm sure it. you have something to add on that. You have a story about Beyonce. <laughs> I do. In the current that's, issue in, of Vogue. that's in Vogue. It's true. It's true. Um, but I, I, you know. Getting ready for that story, I did. I I, I know her oeuvre uh-huh. better than I know Kanye's at this point. I do. <laughs> what? How did that assignment come out? Come uh, about? Well, actually, it came about because um, 
um, my agent had submitted my book to Vogue um, as a pop for a possible excerpt, mm-hmm. and the answer came back. Um, you know, we were sorry to pass on it. You know, very nice, it's elegantly written. Would Margot Jefferson be interested? Um, and I had written for Vogue years ago. Yeah, before, yeah. Be interested in writing an essay on Beyonce for our September issue, and I said Margot Jefferson would. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she will, and she would. <laughs> Done, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the uh, in the Michael Jackson book, the sort of like when it came out and and uh, when an author wants a book to land. And so your book now is coming out amidst a lot of discussion, yeah. Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on in terms of police brutality, police shootings. And a general sense that it's part of that is, you know, what do we mean when we talk and think about and, you know, um, about race and, and prejudice and, you know, wh- how does it manifest itself? What are all, how do all these structures reveal it or, and, and oppose it? And so, you know, there's, there's a real attempt, I think, to get more at, at systemic matters and also to really push, push language and thinking mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And, but presumably when you finished the book, that that conversation, I mean, obviously that conversation's always happening, yeah. but it wasn't happening at, at the level that it is now. No, it wasn't. And, you know, so I'm, I, that feels to me, oh, my goodness, you mean from my selfish, self-centered office perspective? <laughs> yeah, it just <laughs> reads like you're, 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 you're catching a, a wave of conversation at it's, the right time. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I like that. You know, it, it's, it allows real responses to um to my book and it allows me to keep generating responses um you know to what's going on and to what and to think of you know what i write what i respond to what i speak of next for me at least it gives it a even a different context than if i had read it at a different period where i wasn't already thinking about this a lot it yes. actually caused me to respond to the book maybe differently than I would have and otherwise. You, and when you say differently, what do you mean? Uh, I mean that thinking about the whole history, that there's these sort of events that happen in the news and they pop up and they they become flashpoints. Yeah. But the fact that your book sort of starts back and really says, this is the cultural history of how I ended up in yeah. this place. Yeah. I feel yeah. like thinking of it in that way, thinking that every one of these events has a deep history to it. Yes. It just, it that, was an interesting way to think about it. That is broad, but that is very particular. Right. And personal and could be happening, you know, to the person across the desk from you, across the room from you, and in school with your child or your sister or your brother. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously it's, it gets very intimate uh, in terms of parts of your life and we talked about how it sort of pulls out from that and and plays with the form, but just in terms of having people know those things about you, how do you prepare yourself for that? Well, time helps um, because I actually started on this book, um, you know, around 2009, 10. So I had a lot of time to prepare mm-hmm. myself. And that, you know, as you keep writing and rewriting and thinking, as you do sometimes, do I really want to do this? You know, then, of course, that's one of the things that, that comes up. I It was a struggle. I knew it would be, you know. And, and some of these, I'm writing about things that are embarrassing or make me ashamed or that I've always, you know, had, a, had an attractive cover for. Do, am I willing? 
And, you know, each time you ask, <laughs> um, you get closer to what your answer is. So I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I, I am. And did you feel like you mentioned there's there's a just a side note you mentioned uh, or not a side note, but sort of comes up like that's what my therapist tells me that that right. comes up at one point and maybe right. two points. in the I, book. Yeah, I, yeah, I mentioned therapist and the psychopharmacologist. Did writing the book feel like a form of therapy? Writing a book like this, writing a book, it is a process. And so, you know, you're always rethinking, refeeling, reconfiguring, um, you know, everything in your life from, you know, the people you're involved with uh, to the therapists <laughs> you're involved with contributes to that. But uh, working with form um, also makes a huge difference, the, 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 the literary formal choices you make and, and then making them again and then asking yourself, which is a technical question, but technique is often so tied to these other emotional questions of what you're willing to do um, and what you're not willing to do, you know, that, that's, that's particular to writing. Um, mm -hmm. And you have this one chapter that I felt like this must have been, it would be very difficult for anyone to write that's just almost just about personal appearance and, oh, and yeah. beauty and like describing yes. yourself. Yes, yes. And, and my sister, yeah. Yeah, and your her. sister. You know, some of it was was funny though too in a gris in a grim kind of way grim grizzly are strange words for those female whatever but you know if you reread it you'll see that there is something wickedly deadpan about it too <laughs> even as it is <laughs> you know i kind of wanted it to have the precision of a you know very night well appointed almost horror story <laughs> um so, you know, it's also so exact that it was almost easier to write in some ways. You know, it's all a part of any, any woman of my generation, whatever, her race, class, whatever, was just, you know, immersed in, indoctrinated with, you know, all these obsessive details about her looks, her appearance, her body, her clothes. You know, it's... <laughs> Very natural. <laughs> yeah, you talk about nose shapes. You want to have this nose shape, not that yes, nose shape. A little bit yes. this way. It's okay if it's this. That's right. It's okay if the nostrils flared, but it has to be this. It, it's that's right. That's right. Precise. Very precise. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Almost scientific. Yes. And your sister is your sister's? She is not. Um, not. My oh, sister no. was the director of the Alvin Ailey School. Oh. Um, yeah, she was very cool. Uh, but. Um, she died of ovarian cancer in 2010, really shortly. She was getting sick just as I was um, really starting the book, uh, which may have also helped after she died impel me to keep finishing it, not in some sort of, oh, this is for Denise, but just an, an additional sense of, and my mother was getting older, not, oh, you know, and they will love every word I wrote, but. You know, it's disappearing. I know. Let me shape. Let me shape it. Let me, you know, record and and imagine. You know, and reimagine and imagine what it was. Yeah, and she was the. She seemed like the person who who 
no one else had your experience, but she had the closest thing to your experience. Yes. Going to those yes, she and, almost and all white schools and camps. Exactly. And, she and a little group of friends from Chicago. And two of them, you know, um, the two I'm closest to are, are the other two dedicatees of the book. Uh, yeah. have, have they read it? Has anyone um, read it? Most of it, yeah. 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 And, and they're, 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 they're excited. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the um, I think I, I wanted to... Uh, to close with was just I found this I found it was actually one of the things you won the Pulitzer for this is like I feel like I'm about to do what I think is like a critic's worst nightmare Oh God! I kind of hope it's a critic's worst nightmare in a way (laughs) but I found this review of yours uh, that's about this uh, woman Lucy Greeley's book called Autobiography of a Face which sounds like an incredible book it is actually and you say uh so many memoirs make you feel that you've been sealed up inside a wall with a monomaniac (laughs) Are you going to say that this one's not like that? Uh, and you say you're n- in this book. You're not just seeing the writer. You're tr- you're not just trying to see yourself. You're seeing the world in a different way. I thought your book embodied that oh, idea. Thank God. And yes. <laughs> I I wanted it so to do that. Yes. 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 Were you afraid that it would read like you were sealed up inside a wall with a monomaniac? Um, not. I wouldn't say a monomaniac, but um, I might say, um, you know, a compulsive egotist, um, somewhat, pre- um, yeah, precious egotist. I don't think I'm. I honestly don't think I'm a narcissist, but I felt it would be easy to write in a way where someone could see it. Or, you know, she's so that bubble of privilege makes her. You know, really think she can't think beyond herself. And those things were frightening to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I, I worked against them in every way I could as, um, as a writer and as, a, as the person who writes. But, uh, you know, again, I think that's one reason that I tried, I kept varying the, the, the strategies, the devices, the forms, you know, so that the, the points of view, the levels of consciousness and my role um, could change, mm-hmm. keep changing, in term, and, and that the world could advance often. Well, I think it's a remarkable book, and I thank you so much for coming to talk oh, to me. Oh, this was great. Thank you. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Many thanks to Margot Jefferson for coming into the studio. She was really fun to talk to, and uh, her book, which is called Negroland, is fantastic. You should go buy it right now. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Molly Bain. Uh, you should also check out the new podcast that Max and Aaron are working on. It's with the Cleveland Browns. There's a link in the show notes. If you like sports, if you like interesting people, uh, I think you'll like it. Thanks, as always, to our sponsor, MailChimp, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.